Okay, good morning everyone. If, you want to, if you're coming in, do just grab a seat. There are some more spare seats. Don't worry about the person next to you. Um, just grab a seat. There's some more out here. You, you call, also, you can sit on the floor at the front if you really want to. That's, that's totally cool. Do come in. We're going to get started, otherwise we're going to run short of time. So do t- you can take a seat here on this whole hard standing thing. I won't be offended if you encroach on my personal space. It's all good. Great, I want to say um, hi to you all. I'm Will van der Hart, and um, it's lovely to be back here at Momentum. I left my house at 5 a.m. this morning to come speak to you in London, and I was driving through the fog, and uh, I was praying for you guys as I was driving along, and I was just, I was, I had a, I had a strange, obviously I'm not very tuned into the God, because I had a strange sense that there would just be a few here today, and that was going to be all right. The Lord was saying, you know, it's worth the drive, just for a few. And, uh, and there's many, many, many of you, which is uh, obviously the Lord is generous, isn't he? And so it's great to, it's great to have uh, an audience like this, partly because it means that no one feels uh, like they're the kind of weird one and that they're just on site and they're, uh, they're the kind of odd one out. We seem to have got quite a few hundred people here who are saying that I'm a worrier. So the first thing I want to do this morning is just to congratulate you for coming along to a seminar about worry. Because... In all honesty, the people that we see uh, recover from emotional issues like um, problem worry generally are those folk who acknowledge that they've got a problem. And uh, I run a church called St. Peter's in West Harrow, uh, but also uh, I'm I'm one of the founding directors of an emotional mental health ministry called Mind and Soul, which you might have heard about if you're sort of in the the Christian world for some time. And... um, there's no shame in, in, in discussing these things. Just because you're at this seminar doesn't mean you've got a mental health issue, by the way. Just in case any of you are getting worried and you want to leave now, in case anyone labels you, uh, or I could be sort of come chasing after you. Do come in, friends. You can sit here at the front. It's all good. No worries at all. Just come straight through. So um, the people who we see, if you like, struggling long-term with this stuff are the people who we help who are 16, 70, are those who spent their whole life hiding a problem. Okay, but you guys are young. Hopefully you're here because you're between the sort of 18 and 25 bracket. If you're slightly older or slightly younger, I won't tell anyone. Um, and, 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 and you're dealing with this problem now. So I want to congratulate you first and foremost and say that recognition of the problem of worry actually is your best friend in terms of recovering from worry. So you can give yourself or your neighbor a good pat on the back right now and say, well done for being here. This is all good stuff, Okay. Now, I want to um, help you guys to understand what this seminar is all about. It is not, it's, it's described as overcoming worry. And uh, by, by sort of describing it in that way, maybe it's unhelpful. It kind of, it sounds like some sort of 3000 AD film where we're going to be overcoming worry like the Spartans and killing it and destroying it in the dust and there will be no more worry. The reality is, of course, that, that we are not trying to help you not to worry at all. We're helping you to function well and actually accept that worry and a level of anxiety are also your friends. They are not something that you should eradicate completely from your life. And I'm going to be explaining that in the context of some of uh, the teaching that we see Jesus uh, making in Matthew chapter 6 as well. So don't think that I'm trying to share something with you that isn't already included in the Bible. Do come straight through. There's plenty of space here at the front if you're just coming in late. Nobody could exist without a level of anxiety and worry. So what we're trying to do here today is acknowledge that some people have a problem with worry, what we describe as a worry problem. And some people just have a normal range of anxieties and fears uh, which will affect their daily life. What you need to recognize if you're here today and you're really worried about worry is that it's okay to be a little worried from time to time. What's not okay for you is the problem of worrying all the time. And many folks we find struggle with persistent worry problems, whereas they spend an awful lot of their day consumed by worries and never actually having any real peace. You probably won't be experiencing it here while you're camping, but you know that moment when you've had a really good night's sleep? And if you're a problem worrier, you've had a really good night's sleep and you've woken up and you've got your head on your pillow and there's this lovely warm, wow, I've had a really good night's sleep feeling. And it feels like your mind is completely empty and at peace. You think, this is amazing. And then you think, I should be worrying about something right now. 
And then within about 30 seconds, the thing that you're worrying about last night pops back into your head. You start going, oh, that's the thing I need to be concerned about. And then you stew on it and stew on it and stew on it. And then it might be replaced by something else. And then it might be replaced by something else. And then you get to the end of the day completely exhausted. You lie down, you go back to sleep, and then you wake up again. Who wants to extend that feeling of peace that they had first thing in the morning for the whole day? Most people here. Okay. We're going to help you hopefully to do that within the context of a normal life as a human being, which includes genuine cares and concerns. As a church leader, I want to apologize to you for the way in which the church has interpreted the issues of worry and made you feel that actually you should be worried about worrying or that you should feel an extra layer of guilt and shame as a worrier. Most of the Christian worries that we work with, and goodness, there's an awful lot of Christian worries here now, uh, actually have a high level of anxiety about the fact that they worry at all. They feel that their worry is uh, a cause for concern spiritually. Maybe it shows that they lack faith. Maybe God doesn't really love them because they are a worrier. Uh, Maybe they are going to suffer an extra level of condemnation from God because of their anxiety issues. I just want to say to you, friend, that that is not the case. Actually, that we've interpreted Jesus' revolutionary teaching about worry, sometimes in a simplistic and negative way, and it's led to levels of concern which are completely unnecessary. We're going to start right at the beginning now and talk about what we call thought dominance. I want you to imagine that you're driving a car. Who drives here? Great. When we're driving along country roads, particularly towards Shepton Mallet, you might be driving along the road and looking out of the windscreen of your car. Hopefully you're looking out of the windscreen, not out of the side of the car or looking at your cassette player or or playing with your iPod or your mobile phone or anything illegal like that. You're looking out the front window of your car. And as you're in the car with your friends, you come from the city and you're struck by the beauty of nature around you. So you say, wow, look at this. Isn't this gorgeous? The trees of the fields, the lilies of the valley, the birds of the air. What a fantastic place to be. Isn't it great to get out of the city? You're looking down the road ahead of you. You can see uh, a few cars passing, a few caravans annoyingly up ahead. And, uh, and you're trundling along, enjoying the view. Now imagine that as you're trundling along, um, uh, admiring the view, you see some blue flashing lights way, way ahead of you down the road. Now what happens when those blue flashing lights appear is that you acknowledge a signal to something that presents potential danger. So what do those blue flashing lights mean to you in the first instance? Well, various thoughts might come into your mind. One is police. Am I going too fast? Do I need to slow down? Am I concentrating on my mobile phone when I should have both hands on the steering wheel and look out the windscreen of my car? Uh, Is it an ambulance? Might there have been an accident at that place? Therefore, maybe I need to slow down and look cautious and responsible. Is there some sort of uh, danger that's present there that I need to be aware of? Now, all thoughts within the periphery of your vision, mentally, have now narrowed in on this one target ahead of you down the road. So you're no longer looking at the birds of the air or the lilies of the valley or the trees of the fields. You're just looking at the blue lights ahead of you. And this is what we call threat dominance. All of you will be living life and looking through the windscreen of your lives day to day. But for problem worriers, they identify, if you like, blue lights on the horizon that signify for them some sort of present danger, something to be concerned about. Now, the important thing about this analogy is the idea that the, the lights aren't actually visible to you. You're not, you're not yet at the accident itself. You can just see them kind of flashing distinctively on the horizon, but you're not 100% sure what you're going to find when you get there. In reality, what you might find when you get there is that there might have been a new discotheque that opened up you know, a couple of days before in some sleepy urban village of Shepton Manitou associated regions. Or there might be an ice cream van who's getting a bit excited and has got some flashing lights on the roof of his car. You don't know that there is a significant problem up ahead. But for you, at that moment, you're doing what we call catastrophizing. You are identifying those blue flashing lights and you're beginning to catastrophize what those might signify. Now, human beings tend to be life preservers. That's why we're so successful uh, 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 you know, as an organism, if we're going to be really base about things. You know, we're successful, uh, if you like, biologically speaking, because we seek to defend ourselves 
rather than necessarily be a high-level predator. Just have a little feel of the waistline. My wife does this every so often. She has a good tug on my waistline to check that I'm still in order. Uh, and uh, she reminds me that I need to keep running around the block. And uh, I'm quite soft and squidgy. Now, in the scheme of animals, that doesn't make me uh, particularly successful. It doesn't mean that I should go around roaring at lions, uh, you know, and uh, wrestling snakes and alligators. Actually, it means that I'm vulnerable and therefore I need to defend myself. Now, God's obviously given us these attributes. The great attribute that we have is our mind, the ability to recognize danger and to avoid danger. So we are, if you like, built to be defensive. And as soon as we see something that signifies danger, we respond immediately by withdrawing from that potential danger or trying to make that danger safe. We're trying to resolve what we're afraid of. Now, what I want you to acknowledge is that actually you are unsure of what those blue lights signify, but as soon as they are located in your mind, as soon as you've targeted those blue lights, nothing else on your peripheral vision seems to make much sense. Nothing else is significant. Who's found themselves not studying because they're worried about something? Who's found themselves not investing in a healthy relationship because they're terrified about something? Who's found themselves not doing their work because they're researching web health on the internet because they're terrified they're going down with something? You know, all of us will have struggled with what we call a dominating fear or theme. And that has actually stopped us from perceiving the wider realities of life. Now, what's going on here isn't something that's dysfunctional. What you're doing is something that's perfectly normal, to identify a threat and then to respond to that threat. The problem is the strength within which you believe that threat to be significant to you. Now, I want to sort of affirm warriors in that you understand Myers-Briggs has four different types in terms of personal typology. And Rob, who's a consultant psychiatrist who I work with, running mind and soul, uh, believes strongly that there's a fifth type there's a fifth style of person, if you like, not just the sense of feeler, you know, intuitive, etc., extrovert. But actually there's, there's a, 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 what we call a classified neurotic type. Now, you might not, not like that classification, but what that actually means is, is actually that someone's more attuned to anxiety and worry as a natural life state. Now, these people often tend to be highly functioning. So again, I want to sort of commend you and say if you're here because you're a problem warrior, you tend to be highly functioning. That means you're a thinker, uh, you're very sensitive often, you often work extremely hard and you're often extremely caring for those around you. So you might be at the centre of some sort of social group as well whereby you're supporting a number of people because you're naturally concerned about life. And you will notice that you might not agree with me that this is actually a natural life state, but, but you will notice that there are friends who just don't worry. I wrote an article in Christianity, I think, last month, and um, I, I contacted lots of other clergy friends. One of them was the Bishop of Wilsdon, Pete Broadbent. And I said, Pete, you know, can you give me a, um, you know, a byline for a worry article I'm writing? Let me know what you think. He wrote back, he said, Will, I'm not the right person to ask. I don't do worry. Now, he's not kidding. He's just saying what's true for him. He just doesn't do worry. It's just not a problem for him. Whereas another friend of mine who's been a priest for 40 years is one of the most sensitive and successful pastoral ministers I know. He said, Will, despite 40 years in ministry, despite knowing Jesus for my whole life, despite having a safe and confident, loving family, I found I persistently struggle with the issue of worry in my life. Remarkable. Two people, one of them is a problem worrier and one of them doesn't worry at all. Now what you might have found is that when you're really worried, you're seeking reassurance from someone. And so you say to your friend in your tent, I've got some, uh, some nasty kind of white spots on my tongue. What do you think? And they go, well, you've been sleeping in the tent. You've not brushed your teeth this morning. Don't be such an idiot. There's nothing wrong with you. You, you kind of feel all right for a few minutes, but then you go and brush your teeth and then you, you find yourself kind of looking in the mirror at your tongue and then wondering whether something isn't wrong with you. And then you, you go on your Blackberry and start Googling white spots on tongue, question mark. And then you go to a health forum and someone says that they've got white spots on their tongue too. And they think that they might have a fatal disease. And then you really start worrying. And then you go to the health centre and ask them, what do, you, what do you think? 
and they're really reassuring. But then you don't trust them because they're medical people. You don't think that they would tell you the truth. They want to break it to you softly. You know, warriors will always identify the problem. They will not believe or respond to reassurance because on the peripheral view, if you like, of their world, a potential threat initiates a whole cycle of catastrophization and anxiety. And there's something that we term the limbic response, which is response to uh, you know, the endocrine system in your body, the, the, the process of worry that initiates a whole lot of different enzymes that will release a whole array of different physical sensations. So as soon as you feel anxious about something, a cycle of anxiety has already begun, which will mean that blood is leaving your extremities and moving to your heart. Your limbs will get twitchy and you'll be prepared to run away from something. You might find your vision changes, your hearing changes, your taste sensations change. You might feel deeply on edge and unable to think about anything else. Have you ever noticed how you might have been really worried about something for two or three days, never found any resolution to it, but then it kind of just fades away. And it's like you just don't worry about it anymore. Have you noticed that actually very rarely do you ever get any resolution to any of your worries? Very rarely do they ever actually become something more significant. I want to help you by describing what we call two types And this is really, really important to you guys as you move forward in understanding worry. We describe two types of worry, solvable worry and floating worry. Now, sometimes at seminars like this, someone comes in and I talk about worry. And at the end, they say, you know what? My mum died of cancer last week. I've got a terrible arthritis in my leg. My daughter's been taken into hospital recently. Our house has been repossessed. You know, my husband's lost his job. You tell me not to worry. And I go, wow. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Let's, let's have a talk about this. You've misunderstood where it's appropriate to be worried. There are two sorts of worry, solvable worry and floating worry. We're here today to deal with floating worry. But before we move on to floating worry, I want to talk about solvable worry for a minute. Solvable worry is a worry with constructive outcomes. And it's a result of concrete problems. They're present time orientated or time limited. And they can be measured by finite outcomes. And they respond to problem solving techniques. Now, at this time of recession, a lot of people are very worried. Maybe that's why this seminar is so ridiculously packed. The thing is that you might be worrying right now about whether you're going to lose your job. And if you know that within the company you work for, people are being laid off, it would be perfectly natural, normal and appropriate to be worried that you might also be laid off. If you know that you're your place of work is is making cuts in two weeks' time, anticipating those cuts for two weeks and being anxious about those cuts is perfectly natural and normal and to a level helpful. Why might it be helpful? Well, it might be that you try and perform extra well at work for the next two, two weeks, that you come in a bit early, that you smile at your boss a few times, that you make him a cup of tea, that you show yourself to be indispensable in this place of work. And that might actually have an effect on whether you remain in that place of work or not. So you might actually save your job by doing something because you're prompted to act because of your worry. Go back to the blue flashing lights for a minute. Imagine it was a policeman in his car with a speed gun pointing down the road. If you're worried that actually it was a policeman in a car with a speed gun and you were speeding, it would then lead you to slow your car down Therefore, avoid a speeding ticket, three points on your license, and going broke. Quite useful. So actually, a level of concern, solvable worry, is natural, normal, and helpful. And people who, um, who, who don't have any concern are what we call impulsive types. And they often get themselves into real bother. So they feel compelled to do certain things without counting the cost. And you might have friends like that at college or at work who just do crazy things. And they do those crazy things, and everyone else is going, don't do that. And they do it anyway, and then they suffer the consequences. Now, I can pretty much guarantee 100% that there's not a single impulsive type person in this room right now. That's not to say that none of you demonstrate any impulsiveness, but actually you have such heavy worry controls that you never get to act out any of your impulses. 
You're the sort of people who stop and think about what you're going to do before you do it. So solvable worry is really important. But solvable worry responds to problem-solving techniques. You can actually problem-solve your way out of solvable worry. Okay? So think about actually identifying what sort of worry you're suffering from right now. Is it a solvable worry that you can think about, that you can receive advice about, and then you can resolve? And is it time-limited? The underpinning foundations of solvable worry are confidence, assurance, a rational cognitive process. And they're about actually working something out. If you struggled with your exam results the other day and you, you were worried about that, you probably went to clearing and then you spent time on a call line listening to Bob Marley. And uh, as you listened to him, uh, you felt enlivened, but you were hoping to get through to someone. And when you did finally, after nine hours, get through to someone, they helped you to find a place at university. Your anxiety led you to action, which led you to find the place that you needed to go to university, and now you feel better about it. But think about the other worry, because that's what this is all about. It's normal and natural and helpful to worry about things that are solvable. Let's think of the enemy worry. This is called floating worry. And this is a worry with destructive outcomes. Floating worry results from undefinable anxieties. They are not time-limited. They have no measurable goals or outcomes, and they do not respond to problem-solving. You know those push pencils? Did you? St- Am I too old? I'm getting older. You know those push pencils you got as kids? They've got like nine leads in them, and, uh, and, and you, you change color by pushing one out. Now, problem worries are like this. They're like a push pencil. They start with the, like, the yellow lead. And they go, oh, no, there's a yellow lead in the end of my pencil. And they wrestle with this yellow lead until they finally get it out. And they worry about it, and they worry, and they worry, and they worry, and they worry. They don't tell anyone about their worry. They just worry and worry. And then finally, after two or three weeks of wrestling, they just get over their worry. And if you like, they've stuck the yellow lead in the back of their pencil. And just for a moment, they've thought, that's it. Now I can have peace because I'm completely sorted. But as they've stuck the yellow lead in this proverbial pencil, another purple lead has arrived at the end of their pencil. This new worry, which they grab hold of and go, oh no. And then they start worrying about this worry, and they worry and they worry, maybe just for a day this time, and then it just seems to fade away. And for a moment they think, ah, finally, now I'm at peace. And then they stick this lead in the back of the pencil, and then another worry, the blue worry, arrives. And so life goes round and round and round. And actually, six months later, they get back to that yellow lead. And they think somewhere in the back of their mind, the strange feeling of deja vu worry. Have I worried about this before? I think I have. But it feels really real. It feels as important now as it did six months ago. The key thing here is that the worrier actually feels like it's significant again, even if everything in their rational mind says, you don't need to worry about this. You don't need to worry about what's going on here. The key thing about these sort of floating worries is that they never get so critical that you move into terrible anxiety, as in you actually have to see the doctor to receive assistance with the anxiety problem, but neither do they dissipate to the point at which you can actually enjoy peace. And friends, we've worked with people who have been worrying hardcore for 60 years or more. The problem never goes away because the activity of worrying actually becomes a life habit. And I don't want that for you today. And so I'm bringing this foundational work into play so you can actually begin to look at things from a new perspective. You see, the underpinning foundations of problem worry, of floating worry, are often low self-esteem, anxiety, being a very intuitive thinker, feeler, and ultra-sensitive. And there's two sorts of ways of identifying these problem worries. I always say, if you use the words, what if... When it comes to thinking about a new worry, then you could have identified a floating worry right there and then. If you can say, what if I get sick? Or what if I lose my job? Or what if this headache turns out to be a brain tumour? Or what if my friends think I'm just an idiot? Or what if actually I'm a X, Y or Z? The words what if automatically identify a floating worry. Because it's not actually pertinent to life as it is now. 
The, iron, the irony is that people who, who struggle with worry often find solvable worries a real relief. It's almost like, wow, something I can really resolve here. This feels really good. Something I can really get my teeth into. I've actually achieved something by worrying about this, and I've got to the end of something. That feels great. The trouble is you have to sift out the wheat and the tares, as Jesus said. You have to identify the wheat of solvable worry from the tares of floating worry. I describe these sort of floating worries as either gnats or ants. And a lot of what we do is helping people to step on gnats and swap gnats from the air. And they're negative automatic thoughts, gnats, or automatic negative thoughts, or ants, whichever way around you like to describe them. But you need to understand that within the context of your own mind is a stream of nonsensical thoughts. Eight to 10,000 of those will appear in your mind over the course of a day. Many of them you won't even be conscious of. But as they stroll through the sewer of your mind, in one ear and out the other, warriors tend to pick things out of the gutter, literally, and go, oh my goodness, that's a frightening thought. That's a terrifying idea. I need to wrestle with that and worry with that until I've kind of found resolution and I know it's okay. It's like blue lights are flashing on the horizon at different times during the day. And then there's an attempt to make these things safe. I've always described them... this experience of life as if you like if I'm standing on a chair imagine I'm standing on a chair right now now these thoughts are floating up from beneath me and they're they're described I describe them as yellow balloons or black balloons now there are a, a, a pr- large prevalence of yellow balloons say there's 70% more yellow balloons than black balloons and the yellow balloons represent a positive normal thought something good and wholesome But the black balloons are interspersed between the yellow balloons and they represent a negative thought, something that actually frightens you, something that asks a what-if question about you, about your family's safety, about your health, about your well-being, about your security. And as those balloons gently rise up beside you, because of the way your mind is tuned, you don't allow the black balloons to float up and away. You grab a hold of the string and then you examine each one really carefully. And you ask questions like, what's this mean? What's this mean for me? And then you begin to catastrophize that thought on the basis of what you understand in terms of safety. But what happens is, the more of these balloon strings that you grab hold of, the less peripheral vision you have. So the more negative your worldview, and the less you see the yellow balloons, which represent the positive thoughts. At the end of the day, you'll end up crowded in by lots of negative worries and cares. Can anyone identify themselves as being someone who does that? Quite a few people. And we will all, to a greater or lesser extent, struggle with these things. Uh, the other way I describe it is that worries have what I call sticky hand syndrome. It's like when you're not in a worrying state of mind, nothing sticks to your hands in a mental sense. Actually, you can let frightening thoughts and ideas float over your hands and nothing gets stuck. But when you're stressed... And when you're low and when you're exhausted, it's like your hands get covered in this sort of glue. That every negative and anxiety-provoking thought that appears in your mind sticks immediately to your hands. The irony is that the harder you try and peel it off, the more stuck it gets. And then at the end of the day, in sort of an exhausted stupor, you kind of give up trying and then the worry just seems to fade away. Friends, nothing in life is certain apart from Jesus Christ. I want to say to you this, the fertile soil of what problem worry is the problem of uncertainty. If we could resolve in mind and soul the issue or the struggles that people have with the issues of uncertainty in life, there would not be any worries around. Worriers struggle with life in general because actually they struggle with the concept of uncertainty. Warriors want to be certain that they are going to be okay and that their loved ones are going to be okay and that life is going to be okay. And it's actually a disease in itself if you like is the intolerance of uncertainty. Many people in society at large and some of those other types I've described today just don't have a problem with not knowing what's going to happen next. Problem warriors struggle if you like they're intolerant to concepts of uncertainty and i want to say to you this friend if you really want to overcome problem worry in your life you have to begin by 
accepting that life is uncertain. Now, everything within you will be wrestling with that idea. You'll be thinking, no, 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 Will, that's absolutely wrong. You know, we can be sure that we're going to be okay. We can be absolutely certain that everything is going to be safe and sound. But I want to tell you this. If you really want to go down that road, if you want to make sure that everything is going to be okay all the time, your life will not be okay. Your life will just be racked and ruined by worry. Because if you need to make everything absolutely certain and sure, then really that is going to become your life's work. We often work with people who are struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think a number of us could probably say that actually to a level, there is a spectrum of that within all worriers. That we become slightly obsessed with certain things which aren't necessarily rational or reasonable. You could just say actually that it's worry taken just to a new level. But the process of overcoming OCD is the process of accepting uncertainty, of actually welcoming uncertainty, sitting with it until it's okay to be uncertain. And some of the ways in which we help people to overcome this problem is actually by provoking uncertainty in their lives. So when they say to you, I've got some white spots on my tongue, you know, do you think I'm going to be all right or have I got a disease? You say, yeah, you've got a definitely terrible, evil disease and you're going to die within the next 20 minutes. Now you're all going, oh my goodness, that doesn't sound very compassionate. Okay. But that's the way we, that's what we call um, exposure and response prevention. It's an actual, it's a very helpful psychological technique. We expose someone to the thing that they're most afraid of and then we stop them responding if you like, by making the situation safe. If I took a massive... Who's scared of spiders? Any arachnophobes? Great. So we'll take this young lady in the middle here. And she's, she's looking at me slightly fearful at the moment as if I'm going to produce a tarantula from my pocket at the moment, which I'm not. But if I did have one here and I placed it on her shoulder... Now, she's, she's squirming already and looking very anxious. So I'm, she's biting her lips and she's beginning the endocrine response. So I'm talking her into this one. I'm really sorry, friend. So I'm talking her into this, and her breathing's becoming shallow. I can tell, and she's began to tense up. I'm describing it in her seat. I'm not going to take you towards a panic attack. Don't worry. I'm, I better stop there. Um, but if I was, I'm going to shoot someone else because I can see this working too well. Who else is an arachnophobe? Great. Okay, young man at the back. I feel less compassionate towards you. Um, <laughs> so, so he's looking quite happy and confident. So I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this great arachnid out, and I place it on his shoulder. Now, initially, what's going to happen is everything within him wants to make him run out of the room throwing the arachnid to the floor or ripping off his shirt and trampling all over it. But if I, if I disallow that, if I force him to sit in his seat, sit very still and wait whilst this great tarantula remains there on his shoulder, over the next 45 minutes, a very interesting thing will happen. Initially, his endocrine system will spike massively with a huge amount of adrenaline. So he will be completely focused on this arachnid. He will not be able to think of anything else but keeping his eyes on this arachnid and hoping that it's going to remain on his shoulder. But after about 15 minutes, he will begin to feel slightly better as actually the adrenaline begins to wear off because only one cycle is possible within this 45-minute period. And then it will gradually drain away and he will start to feel quite tired and he will start to feel a little bit down. But then after about half an hour, he will start feeling quite bored. And by 45 minutes, he will start addressing me in conversation about what I've been doing and, you know, have I been working here for long and, you know, when am I going home and other questions equally mundane. You see, he'll become bored by the problem because he's been exposed to it for such a period of time that he's realized that this arachnid is not actually going to do him any damage. Now, the same thing is true for uncertainty. If you have been trained over the last 20 years to be intolerant of uncertainty, it, becomes, it can become your life's work to challenge uncertainty, to know who, who feels that. I need to be sure. Is anyone health anxieties here? Any, any health? Anyone who can identify, you don't need to identify yourself. Anyone struggling with health anxiety and go on, the, go on the internet to check out if they're okay. Okay. Now, if you suffer from health anxiety, the sense that you might get ill soon is very compelling. The fact that you could book in an appointment to see your doctor or you could go online and research your symptoms is very compelling. The trouble is, when you go and search your, your symptoms and you find out that you're fine, you only actually enjoy peace for about one or two minutes before a secondary doubt comes into your mind that says, well, maybe you've not got it right, or maybe your symptoms actually mask a deeper problem. And so you go back online and you search again. And so that cycle of searching 
for certainty becomes a never-ending spiral of difficulty. The only way to overcome it is say, yeah, maybe I'm going to die. People die all the time. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. I don't really know. That's very uncomfortable. Some people are going, oh my goodness, I don't think I could do that. And actually, just like the arachnid, it, it begins by accepting the pain of uncertainty. But over time, you can train yourself to live a life of dealing with uncertainty over the long haul. There are three ways of doing it. Denial, denying that there's a problem, actually saying, no, 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 it's all going to be fine. Intolerance of uncertainty, finding out the answer or trying to. Or thirdly, acceptance, which is the only real way out of problem worry. Accepting that you find uncertainty hard, but accepting uncertainty anyway. I want to encourage you to work on that. Because if you can overcome the problem of uncertainty, you can really deal with the root of your worries. I like to describe worries as uh, in, in the acronym FEAR, the acrostic FEAR. False evidence appearing real. Fear, false evidence appearing real. We're just going to do a straw poll in the room right now. On average, person maybe has, say, 10 fears a day. The average problem warrior has 10 fears a day. They might be familiar to them, but they might have 10 fear experiences a day. They have those seven days a week, so they have 70 fears a week. And they have them 52 uh, weeks of the year. So how many is that? Approximately. About 3,500. Now, how many people are here? 400? 3,500 fears times by 400 people. So how many is that? 14,000 fears. So 14,000 fears are represented in this room right now. Now, I want you to put up your hands if 30 or more of your fears have come true in the past year. Hands up. Not a single hand for the tape. 20 fears out of the 14,000. 20 fears. Have 20 of your fears come true in the past year? 20. Not a single hand. 10 fears. Have 10 of your fears come true in the past year? Okay, there's 14,000 fears in the room. I've got two hands. Have I got any more? Three hands. Four hands. So we've got 40 fears out of 14,000 so far. Okay, five fears or less have come true in the past year. You don't have to pipe your hand because the neighbour is this. Just, you know, just, just saying. If they really have five fears that you can count, you can really identify. Okay, so we've got about 50 people, I'd say, have got five fears. So my mathematician there, we've got, we've got 40 fears plus... Five fears shared by 50 people. 219 total. So out of 14,000, thank you, out of 14,000 fears, 290 bad things actually happened. Now that's interesting. 290 out of 14,000. But friend, tell me, do bad things happen to good people? Of course they do. Bad stuff happens all the time. My son, I, I, my, my wife gave birth to our little son in November last year. Honestly, I can tell you I have never worried so hard and so long in my whole life. He got this disease within two weeks of being born. He nearly died. He was on a life support machine. They had to give him adrenaline to keep him alive. Then he got MRSA in hospital. Then he nearly died a second time. He's in there for seven weeks. I'm thinking, God, where on earth are you? You think I'm... I finally knew what real worry was. You know, life is hard. Bad stuff really happens. But look at it. Wouldn't you like to just be worrying for those 290 worries rather than worrying 14,000 times for no reason at all? Can you see that actually, in the vast majority of cases, fear is false evidence appearing real? Now, let's imagine, who's got a kid here? Has anyone got a little kid who's learning to ride a bike? Okay. Yes, yes, sir, at the back. Thank you. So I'm just going to pretend that you're nervous about your children falling into danger, which is quite a common parental fear. I have that fear too. So your daughter is just learning to ride a bike. 
Now, you're sitting on this chair and your daughter is cycling around right now. Now, if you're sitting on this chair and you're worrying that your daughter is going to fall off this bike, does your worrying keep her glued onto her bike in any way? No, it, just for the take, the man's shaking his head. So there are no, between, in your brain, there are no cosmic powers that can keep your daughter glued on her bike. Can, and can you describe to me what worry does to your experience of your daughter learning to ride her bike? It makes it harder. Why does it make it harder? Well, it makes it harder because the dad is failing to enjoy this incredible moment when this daughter is learning to ride her bike. And it makes it harder for the daughter because she's looking at her dad's face and seeing the face of disapproval and fear. And she's learning that there's something to be afraid of. When actually, if dad isn't worrying and he's smiling there going, this is great. Even if she does fall off, which she probably will, it's all going to be okay. We have to challenge worry at its roots and recognize that actually we are often overestimating the threats. If we can accept uncertainty and coach ourselves through by saying, I'm likely to be overestimating the threat here, we become much more efficient at actually accepting the dangers of life around us. And if we can do that, we can begin to live more free. I, um, I really overcame my problem worry. Well, I say that, I battle with worry still. But I overcame the problem that I had with worry when I was in Hong Kong with my wife. Now, my wife doesn't have a worry problem. She has a normal level of worry. And um, we went to a theme park called Ocean Park or something like that. And it was, it was a very nice kind of like, you know, adventure park like Chessington or Alton Towers. And so we, we, we took a, we had to take a, um, a kind of cable car to get to the top of this mountain to go to this theme park. And at the theme park, I noticed that there was a massive roller coaster called the Dragon. And it was leaning out across the side of a cliff. Now, it was built on about eight stanchions, and it did three or four loop-the-loops. And there was a vertical drop down into the sea below it. And I remember identifying the dragon. It was the blue lights on the horizon of my mind. And immediately, as soon as I saw it, I thought, I'm not going to go on the dragon. And so I noticed that my wife's eyes moved immediately to the dragon. And uh, as soon as she noticed it, I could see her thinking, I'm going to go on the dragon. So I said, darling, I think we should go on the log flume straight away. Because I thought if I fall out of the log flume thing, I'm going to swim down that thing, and I'm going to swim around in the pool, and I'm going to be fine. But I thought if I go in the dragon, then I'm bound to fall over the cliffside with that massive kind of horseshoe thing around my neck, which is going to drown me in one of those cars as I sink to the bottom of the sea. And so we went to the log flume first, which was fantastic and very safe. And then I steered her towards the merry-go-round, which also looked quite innocuous. And then we went to visit some jellyfish inside and had a nice extended lunch. I thought maybe about plying her with some alcohol. Maybe she'd doze off at some point and I'd put her in the cable car and we'd descend back down the hill. But what actually happened was uh, I steered her around the park throughout the day. And then I said, oh, I'm feeling quite tired now, love. I think we, I think we might go home. And she said, but Will, I, I really want to go on the dragon. And so uh, I said, well, I, I'm, I'm really a bit done. You know, there's quite a big queue. So I, I think we'll head back now. And we got into the cable car and we started going down on this sort of half hour journey down the hillside. It was one of the most, really, if you're married, you'll understand this. This is a real painful experience of marital conflict. Initially, the wife is really angry. So she's like, I really wanted to go on that dragon thing. I cannot believe we're only coming to Hong Kong once. I cannot believe that you're not letting me go on this dragon thing. It's so stupid, so ridiculous. Why are we going home now? I just want to go on that one ride. That's okay. I can deal with that. Then it was the, then it was the, uh, the um, no, no, it's fine. No, 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 no. It's, it, no, it's fine. That's the one I can't deal with. That's the, kind of the inverted pain, the silent treatment. No, 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 no. It's all right, love. You know, if you want to let your worry and anxiety get in the way of me having a really good time, it's fine. No, it's all right. No, it's all right. No, we'll, we'll just go and do something that you want to do, which is, the, uh, which is the real clincher. And I remember sweating on the way down there and then getting near the bottom and thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, I am conceding to my intolerance of uncertainty. The fact that I don't know 100% for sure that that roller coaster is safe. And so I decided to make a choice that day, and that's a choice I want to encourage you towards. A choice to feel the fear and do it anyway. You know, I got out of that carriage at the bottom, 
And I grabbed my wife and I jumped in the next carriage that was going back up that same hill. Now that was an extremely painful decision to make because the ride back up the hill was an extremely painful ride. Worry is not free. It costs. Anxiety actually physically can hurt me. I can actually feel pain in my body as I experience anxiety. I feel sick. I feel butterflies. I sometimes begin to sweat profusely, which is why I'm keeping my arms down at the moment. Uh, I can feel faint and dizzy. I can hear ringing in my ears. All sorts of different somatic experiences of anxiety. And so I'm going back up the hill. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I've committed to go on the dragon. And then I got out of, of the cable car and I went over to the dragon. And then I had to wait 15 minutes in a queue for the pain of going on this thing that I was going to go upside down four times and potentially fall out into the ocean with this great horseshoe thing around my neck. So I suffered extremely excruciating pain for 45 minutes only to get on this roller coaster that I didn't want to get on anyway. And when I got in, I remember feeling that feeling when, when that and then like it rests on you. That's the bit I hate. The weight of this thing. Feeling like stuck, locked in. And then I can honestly tell you, I didn't enjoy it at all. I didn't enjoy the ride. I kept my eyes closed and I screamed all the way around. Four loop the loops. And the photograph afterwards, there's just me with this. Ah! Um, it's most unattractive and I didn't buy it. But as I got off the dragon, I felt an incredible sense of triumph. I felt that actually, finally, I had overcome my own fear. I'd worried about it, but I'd achieved it. And you know what? I could have got back in the queue and done it again. I wouldn't have enjoyed it, but I could have done it. Now, I want to say to you, life isn't certain. Life is filled with risk, but God knows you. It says that he's written his name on the palm your name on the palm of his hand. He knows you. He knows when it's your time. It says in the parable of the rich fool, he knows when it's your time. And we need to work with him to accept life's risks and challenges. Now, you might have seen the worry book. This is out in the bookshop. I think here, if it's not, it's on Amazon. And, you know, I'm not, this isn't about me plugging my book. But I, I want to tell you that the, that the tools, that there is work, hard work to do in overcoming worry. You know, who's a, who's a body, any bodybuilders here? Any, anyone who likes to lift weights? They're going to feel really self-conscious. Thank you, sir. So um, if, you, if you're a bodybuilder and you're wanting to lift weights and get strong, you cannot invite someone into the gym to lift them for you whilst you sit there reading Heat magazine and eating a pasty. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make you strong, okay? Only you actually lifting the weights will make you actually physically strong. And what I want to say to you is this. Actually, overcoming worry takes hard work, but it is possible. There are three, there are three key tools that we describe. There are the, the bronze medallion tool. It's called thought record charts. Actually, thought record charts are free. If you go to the Mindasol, mindasol.info on our website, you can download these for free. And they enable you to begin to ask questions about what you're thinking. Everyone think about their toes for a minute. Give them a good wiggle. Are they feeling a little bit sweaty and smelly after a, a few days on the campsite? Now, it's easy to think about your toes because you're using your brain to think about them. They are not your brain. Now, everyone think about their brains. Give their brain a little wiggle. How's it feeling? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because it's so difficult to think about the thing that you used to think about the things with. Thinking about that thing with the thing that you used to think about it generally isn't that objective. The thing that you need to understand is that actually you need to do work on your mind, yet you're going to be using your mind to do the work. And we advocate something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which was founded by Albert Ellis, who was the sort of pioneer of, of, of behavioral therapies. And, 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 and this is a brilliant Christian-friendly work. It's about actually doing things differently. If you change something, you will change something. Imagine that your brain is ultra-sensitive to fear, and that actually it needs to be retrained to accepting uncertainty and to dealing with worry in new ways. Thought record charts can help you to do that and to make new appraisals of what your worries actually are. It's amazing. If you write them down and you look back at them a month later, you, can li you find yourself laughing and going, wow, was I really worried about that? And then you can build up themes and you can build up a picture of your own personal worry profile. 
And then later, having used thought worry charts for three months, you start saying things like, ho, 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 you can't trick me. I've seen that one before. I've got that written down on my thought record chart. Or someone like me would worry about something like that, so I'm not going to worry about it. We start making new appraisals, and that's the silver standard tool that we advocate. It's called making new appraisals. Imagine Disco Dave. He goes to the disco. He's wearing uh, his Lycra John Travolta all-in-one suit. And as he gets to the discotheque, he steps out onto the dance floor, and he begins to throw down some of his best moves, at at which point all his friends begin to laugh loudly. Now, Disco Dave is encouraged by their laughter because he thinks they must be having a really good time and thinking that he is a brilliant dancer. So he dances even harder and even faster. And at the end of the night, he goes home, lies down in his bed and thinks, I'm a great dancer. He can't wait to go back to the discotheque next week. But imagine exactly the same scenario. Disco Dave, he goes to the discotheque. He gets on the dance floor in his white latex suit and he throws up a hand and goes, Pew, I'm the best dancer in the world. And all his friends start laughing. Now, as they dance, as they laugh, his confidence crumbles and he begins to think, oh my goodness, they are laughing at me. And so he immediately retreats to the bar and he stands at the bar, puts his hand on the the bar and has a beer and and thinks, I'm never going to dance again. I'm the worst dancer in the world. Can you see how Disco Dave's view of danger affects how he perceives the activity? Now, he immediately thinks that his friends are laughing at him, but imagine that they weren't. Imagine that someone had fallen over behind him and that they were laughing at that person. That doesn't change how Disco Dave views the scenario. Making new appraisals, imagine the scenario a third time. Disco Dave, he's wearing, it's not, I'm getting the terminology wrong, spandex, isn't it, is the the stuff I'm thinking of. Or is it lycra? I don't know. I'm not very good at textiles. So Disco Dave, he's out there and he's throwing down his best moves and his friends all begin to laugh and he retreats to the bar this time. But then he says, oh, I went to that worry seminar and I learned about making new appraisals. Now, which ones can I come up with? So then he's having a beer and he's thinking, yeah, I um, maybe someone fell over behind me and they were laughing at that person. Or maybe they were having a really good time and they just started spontaneously laughing. Maybe they liked my dance and they were just kind of laughing in jubilation. And maybe actually they were laughing at me because I was silly. But then if you turn the the sound off, everyone would be dancing in a weird way. And and actually everyone's dancing pretty silly. And as I'm watching them, they're all dancing in a kind of crazy way right now. So maybe it's not that bad after all. Now, Disco Dave doesn't believe his new appraisals, but by making them, he changes his neurotransmission, the way his brain actually works. And what happens is his initial view of what happened weakens greatly. And so he decides that he's going to go back out on the dance floor and give it another try. He's going to do an experiment. And so he goes back to the dance floor. He starts dancing again the same way, but this time his friends don't laugh. And they just carry on dancing with him, nodding in agreement and having a really good time. Making new appraisals changes Dave's experience. And so when he goes to bed that night, he thinks, yeah, that was a tough moment, but I got through it, and I realized that my worst fears weren't what I thought they were. That's the silver standard tool. And the gold standard tool for overcoming problem worry is actually called present contemplation. If you read the newspapers, you will have heard a lot about a tool that's come out of kind of Eastern theology called mindfulness. Now, Clinically, this can and has been separated from its religious roots, which are in Buddhism. But we have the best clinical practice, and Rob would advocate mindfulness used in a clinical setting, but we really feel that actually what we want is tools for Christians, not tools that come out of Eastern stuff. And so we've redesigned, if you like, we've, we've, we've found the roots of the ability to be aware of oneself in Christian theology. And Jesus talks about watchfulness when he describes the virgins who light their lamp and waiting for their master's return. And Paul talks about praying uh, thankfully and watchfully. Now I want to kind of encourage you towards present contemplation as a way of observing your thoughts more objectively, allowing them to be there and actually stopping the process of working things out at the roots. Now this is quite a complicated uh, exercise but it is a life-changing one. If you can use present contemplation in your daily life, you can literally coexist with your worst fears without them affecting you at all. Now, as I said, you can find out more about that in in the worry book, but we actually have this free online section where you can actually receive a a whole load of tools in how to use present contemplation now, which I'd love love you to, to share. But just for a moment, present contemplation as we come into land, is the ability to view yourself 
a little bit more objectively and acceptingly without immediately going, I need to work this out. Just like the arachnid example, you take your fear that pops into your mind, for example, the fear that you might die, and instead of actually engaging with the fear in terms of working it out, you allow it to be present and you get on with other stuff at the same time. You don't try and avoid it, you actually recognize it and identify it. You say, I am suffering from the fear of death right now. You allow its presence and then you carry on anyway. Now, everything within you wants to stop all action and start paying more attention to this one worry and start working it out. But actually, as you allow it to be there, it fades of its own volition, and you find that freedom becomes you. It's really important, and I could spend a whole day with you working on this, that you understand that if you use any tool, if you like, to work some worry out, it becomes a new shackle to bind you with. It can become a new life process. And you don't want that. You want to allow problem-worry thoughts to come into your mind and to go out of them again. And Jesus' teaching on worry is the most liberating and helpful in Matthew 6. Jesus didn't respond to the people, you should do this, you must do this, you ought to do this. Jesus expresses a complete emotional spectrum. He looks after people's emotional, physical and relational needs. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And he says, don't worry about tomorrow because today has got enough cares of its own. He's saying, don't get involved in floating worry about what might happen tomorrow. Deal with the issues today. Employ problem solving today, because today has cares of its own. Well, I want to give you some chance, a chance to ask a couple of questions, and then there's going to be some space for some ministry before our next session. Has, has anyone got any questions they'd like to ask? Yes. Yes, uh, for, the, for the tape, worries about relationships, how do you deal with one partner who's a worry and one partner that, that isn't? What I'd say to you is this, the worrier must not seek reassurance from the non-worrier because that ruins relationships. So if the worrier becomes dependent on the non-worrier by saying, am I going to be all right? Is this something to worry about? Is this going to be a problem? The relationship will be trashed. Uh, and we've seen that, actually, in, in, in real terms, because the non-worrier becomes so plagued by the worrier's need for reassurance that they just feel overwhelmed. If the worrier needs reassurance, and reassurance is not a tool to live by, it's a, it's a disaster. And uh, that's why I said about the, 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 the importance of intolerance. Of uns- uh, if, you, if you're intolerant of uncertainty, you seek reassurance. Reassurance-seeking is like putting on a pair of shackles and locking yourself into a dungeon. Do not seek reassurance from the internet, from friends, from anyone. If it's a genuine problem, you'll know it's genuine. If it's a what-if issue and you seek reassurance, you're writing, you're writing yourself into a total mess. Okay? But what I would say to you, if you're struggling with reassurance, is to find reassurance outside of the relationship. And also to say that every relationship provokes a level of anxiety. And, and it's good to talk to an independent person about that but also there is something called relational OCD, ROCD. And quite a lot of people we work with struggle with, um, if you like, unrealistic worries about relationships. And they might wake up one day and think, oh, uh, maybe I don't love him or maybe I don't love her. And then they begin to ask those questions incessantly. Well, as soon as you ask the question, do I love them? Of course, their feeling of love almost evaporates because you, you, it can't exist in a context of questioning. You have to accept that you love choose to love and love anyway yeah but there's there is some stuff online a guy called Stephen Philipson is brilliant on relational OCD but I wouldn't necessarily say go there unless you have a really chronic problem but don't use reassurance in relationships it's really important yeah another quick question um anyone else yes hello okay what what do you do about a friend who's a real worrier and and I mean I think the key thing is don't give in to reassurance seeking from them so if they're really if they're a real worrier Actually, start pinging things back and saying, well, you might, you might have a car crash, yeah. Or, yeah, you might fail your exams, yeah. You, yeah, you might lose your job. You might, but then you never know. Okay? The worst thing that Christians do is because they want to be lovey-dovey with their friend is that they start going, oh, no, oh, it's going to be all right. Oh, let's all pray about it and ask Jesus. Okay? That's a real mistake because Christian friends can use Jesus as their reassurance. And let me tell you this. Jesus isn't about reassurance. He's about living life and life in all its fullness. So don't use Christianity as some sort of crutch for worry. You can cast all your cares onto him because he cares for you, but you mustn't use your faith as some sort of magical conundrum 
We've got people who start flicking for a verse or crossing themselves or you know, doing some mystical religious magic moment to try and make it all go away. You know, you've got to lift the weights and, and Jesus is there with you. But you've got to face your fears. Don't let Christianity, if you like, become a crutch for worry. It's actually about liberation. And when Jesus says, trust me, he's saying, trust me for your eternal future. I can provide for you. But you've got to live life now. Yeah, any more questions? Yes, sir. Yes, if you have a chronic health issue that comes with what ifs, you're, you're one of many people who have a chronic health issue. That health issue is actually life. I have a chronic health issue. I'm going to die. I'm not quite sure when. It's a chronic issue, though. And as I get older, it's going to get more and more chronic. Okay? Now, the, the, what I want to say to you is I am not, not want to reduce the chronic nature of your particular issue, but I want to say to you that, that actually the uncertainty of your issue might provoke more fears, but actually we've all got the same chronic issue. We just don't know it yet. Okay? So you employ the same techniques and strategies and live with the same level of uncertainty. And we've worked with people who have, for example, cystic fibrosis, um, diabetes, who said, well, what if my blood sugar goes all funny? Or what if my lungs collapse? You're going, yeah, it's going to happen at some point. Maybe when you're 90, maybe when you're, when you're 19. We don't know. But actually worrying about it does not make you better, just like the girl on the bicycle. Okay? Yeah. One or two more. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Yes, and, you've, in, in you, and, and actually they are, they are mistaken in trying to give you an answer. Because I don't know what God wants for your life, and if I suggested that I did, then I would be lying. And actually, living with the uncertainty of faith, which actually only lives in the context of doubt, is essential for well living as a Christian. You know, God is not certainty, God is faith, if you like, in certainty. I'm certain of his presence, but I, my faith is a faith in the context of doubt. If, if you like, if God was concrete, everyone would believe in him. But I have faith in him, and that, that exists in the context of doubt. So what's really important is lots and lots of Christians get wrangled with this whole idea of what is God's will for my life, and then they stop living life. Okay? What God has done with you, he's created you and he's made you for living. And he's also given you free will to make choices for his glory. Finding this kind of uh, end of the rainbow box of treasure about what God's purpose in your life is, is to say that actually God isn't coactive in your life right now. You know, if you're off course with God, God will steer you back on course as long as you submit your will to him. But God isn't like, uh, you know, sort of geo-mapping. You don't kind of like find the code and then go and find the treasure for the next clue in life. He's co-substantive. He lives within you. He says, I am the I am, and I'm present within you. So actually asking questions of what, you know, what is thou divinest will for me now, is actually to say, well, I'm not living with God in my life. We need to live with the uncertainty of saying, well, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. But am I in sin? That's a concrete, solvable problem. Well, no, I've resolved that issue, and I've brought everything to the cross. Now I've got to live my life. Asking bigger questions, if you like. If God wants to break into your life and tell you, what, 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 you know, in, by some flash of lightning what you should be doing next, that's great, good for you. But actually, the first thing he's called you to is live faithfully. And that means not kind of, if you like, trying to work out the uncertainty of life. Living reliant on God now with uncertainty. Last question, sir. Absolutely. Right. I mean, we, you know, again, we could probably run a whole other seminar on determining God's will and, and issues of conflict within the self. I want to say to you guys, you all struggle with worry and therefore you will experience the somatic splitting, which is what you're describing, of, of kind of tummy rumbles and uncertainty, gnawing doubt. Uh, and, and you've very aptly described the separation of the rational mind, if you like, from the instinctual mind. Uh, instinctually you feel uncomfortable with the decision, rationally you think a decision is right. I want to tell you this, if it's rationally right, the likelihood is it's right. It's our instinct, as worry is instinctual vibe is to doubt most things. So most of you struggle between doubt and certainty. Your rational mind tells you one thing, then you feel uncertain and you doubt it. What you're searching for is this feeling of peace about a decision. And just like the roller coaster, Sometimes you have to deal with the negative feeling of uncertainty and unpeace and make a decision anyway. What God hasn't called you to is to be totally paralyzed by fear. He's called you to live. 
Now, the best encouragement I can give to you is to live life with uncertainty. As you use some of the tools I've described, thought record charts, making new appraisals, and present contemplation, you will learn, if you like, the training, you'll enjoy the training of what it means to feel that feeling of uncertainty and to do it anyway. I, 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 I feel like we've been hugely insufficient in terms of it's such a big topic. But I really want to kind of encourage you, because you've come here today, to begin this process of working it out, to actually go further in this process, to actually read more deeply and to engage more deeply in these ideas. Because, because I can see that many people here feel very crippled by worry. But I want to say to you, you know, if you've been a worrier, I, I've been a worrier. You know, I, can, I share your pain. I've experienced the same thing. I still wrestle with worry, but I do believe it's possible to overcome floating worry in the long term and to keep applying those same tools to find greater freedom. The good news is the more you apply those tools, the more you work on those things, the more instinctual they become and the greater peace you feel. Let's, let's have a chance to pray now because I think our time is gone. Let's stand and um, we're going to just invite the Holy Spirit because he, he ultimately will be uh, the one who helps us.